Let's start with a little review of what we did last week. Because we're going to finish out today. Last week, we talked about the parallels between Moses and Mount Sinai and Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. They both teach people about how to live in God's kingdom. Moses led Israel in the exodus from Egyptian slavery. And then when Jesus comes, he announces to all humanity the exodus from spiritual slavery into freedom and into his kingdom. And we also talked about a few connections between Isaiah 61 um, and the Sermon on the Mount. Isaiah 61 is a messianic uh, prophecy. So Jesus is teaching people about his kingdom, and these are the assurances of my kingdom. These are the blessings of my kingdom. And this is how the people in my kingdom live. He's, he's teaching them that, and he's also at the same time, through all of these connections to the Old Testament prophecies, announcing to the people that he is the Messiah. He is the one that they've been promised, and that they should turn to him. This week, we're going to finish out kind of our overview of the Beatitudes. I'm still learning so much um, about the Bible, and so every time I decide to, I feel like the Lord highlights something for me, and I decide to teach on it. I, I always find like there's like so much to look at here. I feel everything I do is an overview. They're so deep that you can go into these things. So we'll finish our overview of the Beatitudes today. Starting here with the fifth one in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. See, this is like a cause and effect. This is a sowing and reaping type of principle. You can tell because the, the cause and the effect are the same. So you're sowing mercy. You're going to reap mercy. That's the principle. Proverbs eleven seventeen says, A merciful person does himself good, but the cruel person does himself harm. So to be merciful to others is to do good to yourself because of that sowing and reaping. Um, showing mercy has a lot to do with being compassionate. The words are tied up together. Having compassion for other people, like what's pictured here in the story of the Good Samaritan. Being merciful, having compassion towards someone who can do nothing for you. There's, the, there's nothing they can pay you back. You do it because you're merciful, you're compassionate toward them. So there's that sense of mercy um, but there's also a sense of mercy, which is the one I'm going to focus on today. Having mercy on someone when they have wronged you. Being merciful towards someone when you could do just exactly the opposite. I think sometimes, um, and, and not all the time, you can be really, truly merciful in a situation like the Good Samaritan. But I think more frequently, we can find a little something for our flesh and being nice to people when they're real downtrodden. You know, maybe that could give us just a little boost it's a lot harder for our flesh to be merciful toward people when they just don't deserve it and they've just been awful to us. Um, so I'm going to focus in on that today. Listen closely to this. What you choose to sow in one situation is most likely what you will reap in a situation where another gets to choose how to deal with you. I'll say that again. When what you choose to sow in one situation is most likely what you will reap in a situation where another gets to choose how to deal with you. And I say most likely because there are often delays 
between seed time and harvest, between our sowing and our reaping. And we may forget so many of the things that we've sown. There's, there's often a time that that germinates and takes root before we really see the harvest of it. And that goes for things we don't want to reap and things that we do want to reap quite frequently. Um, so there's that delay. And things in the kingdom aren't always just this one-to-one conversion. Like, oh, yep, I see how that works. You know, sometimes we don't always see or understand how things are connected. So that's why I say most likely. Think about Jesus. Um, Was he shown mercy by his captors, even though that is what he sowed? He sowed mercy. No, he wasn't. And, you know, we can expect those same type of things. But it's still a kingdom principle that's true in what it attests to. I would still much rather follow the example of Jesus and sow mercy rather than uh, take my own vengeance on people based on what I think they deserve. There's lots of reasons for that. Um, One of those being that my sense of justice is finite. It's poor. It's it's based on my perspective um, and my earthly wisdom. And I'm not going to get it right. I'm going to miss it. It's best for me to just sow mercy to be like Jesus, and to trust the Lord to bring vengeance. Because he is going to do that. He is going to right the wrongs. Let's leave that to him. If that's not warning enough, let's look at what happens to the unmerciful. Doesn't that sound like a great, fun thing to do this morning? Let's look at that. What happens to the unmerciful? It's well laid out in the parable of the, you can call it different things, the unforgiving servant. Um, It's also often referred to as the parable of the unmerciful servant. I'm just going to highlight a couple parts of this here, starting in Matthew chapter 18, 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Let's start off by focusing on these 10,000 talents and this account that the king wants to settle. So the unmerciful servant comes to him and the king says, hey, this is your debt. You got to pay it back. And he begs and the master forgives the debt, right? Look at 10,000 talents because it's significant. Now, all of this comes from my study Bible. And sometimes it's hard to back up exactly all these facts, though I try. What I want you to focus on is the amount. That's the point, is that it's huge. So 10,000 talents is equal to about a billion days worth of peasant wages. A billion days. That was more money that was circulating in the entire region into which Jesus was speaking. It was more money than what was in their economy. And the talent was the largest unit of currency. It's not even like a coin or a bill. It's a weight. It's how they measured gold and silver. The weight of it. That's what a talent is. And also 10,000 is the highest single number that can be expressed in this type of Greek. So the point is, through and through, they're trying to, the writer's making this point that this is an unpayable amount. You cannot pay this back. And the reason for that is that it represents our enormous unpayable debt to God. There's no way you can pay back a billion days worth of wages to him. And it represents his incredible mercy and forgiving our debts when we come to him. That's the focus of this. So what what ends up happening? We know that the unmerciful servant begs and the master says, okay, I'm going to forgive your debt. And then the unmerciful servant goes and he shakes down this guy that owes him money. 
he shakes down this guy that owes him 100 denarii, which is equivalent to about 100 days wages. This doesn't even make sense. If you wanted to pay back your billion days wages and you go shake down somebody who owes you 100 days wages, that's completely illogical. But there's a point behind it. (laughs) You can't pay that debt. And also, I think this is a good place to look at our perspective. When someone has wronged me, when someone owes me something, it's much bigger in my mind. You know, in my mind, maybe it is worth a billion days wages that I get my pound of flesh from you. Because I'm in myself. That's my finite perspective. And to me, that debt is big. Because you push my buttons, and I am mad, and now you owe me, and I am coming for you. (laughs) And what the reality is, though, the reality is that no matter what someone else has done to us or what we perceive that they owe us, that doesn't even touch what we owe God. That doesn't touch the sin, the things that we have done against God. It's just completely incomparable. When you are in Jesus, what has he not had mercy on you for? Nothing. There's nothing. When you are in Jesus, how much condemnation do you carry? None. There's none. It is gone. So that is the same principle that we have to apply toward others because their debt is never going to touch our debt to God and he has forgiven us. He is merciful toward us. So what ends up happening because the servant's unmerciful? The master hands over the servant to the jailers to be tortured until he can pay back everything that was owed. What have we already said? We've already said that's impossible. So what's being represented here is eternal punishment. (laughs) It will never, ever be paid back. No matter how long he's punished, it, it just can't happen. So that's what's being represented. It symbolizes internal punishment. So the merciful will be blessed with mercy. You sow mercy, you reap mercy. And just as a little caveat, um, because I love caveats, you know, mercy is different than being passive or enabling people or being permissive. The motivation, like down at the foundation, is different than real, true mercy. It's motivated by something else, a lot of time that's rooted in fear or some kind of self-interest. It may look the same on the outside, but we have to be careful about what is my real intention here. Um, And we have to have wisdom and all those things. But truly merciful people, they will also reap mercy. Let's move on to the next one. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So to be pure in heart is to be truly clean on the inside. It's basically just righteousness, which we touched on last week. Um, This takes us back to all of that. And where does righteousness come from? It comes from God through Jesus as a gift. We can't merit it. We can't earn it. We can't come up with it on our own. It's not something we can go and attain. It's we submit to him and it is a gift to us. So no one can come by it in their own strength, but they can fake it. People can fake righteousness. And that's why I've got the picture of the cup here, because that's a good representative of that. Um, It looks great on the outside. So if you're down level with it and you're looking at it, you're like, this is a clean white cup. But you look inside of it and it's dirty. The inside doesn't match the outside. 
Jesus was confronting the Pharisees about their hypocrisy when he uses this example of the cup. And he doesn't say to them, who cares about the outside of the cup? Just let the outside of the cup be filthy because it really doesn't matter. That's not what he says. Because our outward purity is important as part of our witness to the world around us. So that is an important part. What he does say is that clean the inside of the cup first so that the outside will also be clean. What is on the inside is going to proceed to the outside and that will take care of itself. So that imputed righteousness from him is what's most important. So if you're saved, you have been purified from the inside out because of the blood of Jesus, because of his righteousness, then is this just something that's nice to think about? Like, can't we just, well, this is done. Yeah, we'll just move on, right? Because this is already covered for me. So no, yes, it is. But what can we take from it to teach us still right now? Um, here's what I think we can take from it. How much are you in cooperation with Holy Spirit before the fulfillment of your perfecting in eternity? How much are you cooperating with him now in that? Um, How is your submission to Holy Spirit now while you're still here on earth, while you're still living in hostile territory, and maybe it costs you something to submit yourself to him? How's that? Speaking of those things that are on the inside of the cup, the things that people don't easily see, like your motivations. You know what motivates you to do the clean outside cup things? What's your intentions when you do things, those type of unseen things, would the outside of your cup look as clean as it does if it matched those hidden things that are on the inside of the cup? I'm not trying to be condemning. That's not, I don't, I don't want you to be condemned and feel like, well, I have to absolutely be perfect at every point, or I'm just, what's the point of even trying? You know, that's not what I'm trying to say. But I'm just saying that when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, when you hear that still small voice, when you know and he's bringing you along in something, when we submit to those things and we give them up to him and we obey his words, we do things his way because he's empowered us to do so, he's put his spirit inside of us, you will see God. You will see God, just like it says, in increasing measure. You'll see his work in your life and you'll see him manifest himself in you. It'll be incredible and it will be very much worth it to see him glorified in your own life. I lost my place. Oh, and those who are pure in heart will literally see God in fulfillment. That's important for us to remember what our hope is and what we await. Um, They will know him even as he knows them now. I love the thought about how God knows us so fully and he still loves us. Like there's, I find so much comfort. Maybe I should find less comfort in it, (laughs) but I find a lot of comfort in knowing that I can't hide anything from him, that he sees it all. So where else am I going to go? I'm going to go to him when I know that I'm awful sometimes, and he's going to help me. And uh, I find a lot of comfort in that. And also that I'll see him face to face. See, Moses, he didn't even get that. Uh, When he wanted to see God, he was hidden in the cleft of the rock, and he got to see God's back as he passed by. Jesus, the one who comes to fulfill the one we've been waiting for, he gives us much greater access than that. Um, We will really see God. Next one, in verse 9 here. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. 
a peacemaker. This is the only time this word, this combination of words, is used in the New Testament. Um, And it's interesting. This is more than just uh, possessing peace. We talk a lot about peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding, uh, the peace that Jesus, only Jesus can give. Um, It's more than possessing peace because you're right with God and that he cares for you. It's more than being a peaceable type. Some people are just peaceable type people, Um, people that don't create strife. The person who's a peacemaker is someone that has all of that, but then diffuses that peace wherever they go, all around them. That's, that's what a peacemaker is. Think of Jesus. He's our ultimate model for this, right? He's the ultimate peacemaker. His death and resurrection for humanity is referred to as the gospel of peace because he brought reconciliation between God and man. He is our peace. He also brought reconciliation, made it possible between Jew and Gentile. So he brought reconciliation with humanity. He dealt with that hostility between them, and he unites those that come to him in himself. People that have nothing in common, he will unite within himself when they come to him. God's original intent was to be at peace with humanity and for them to be at peace with each other. That's how it started, and that's what we're heading back to. So those that bring peace and reconciliation now They bear this family resemblance to God. Like they're about the family business. They're doing the things that Jesus did. And they'll be called sons and daughters of God. So let's look at what are some things that peacemakers do. Peacemakers love their enemies. That's a way to make peace. You love your enemies. You pray for those that persecute you. If your brother or sister has something against you, you go and you reconcile yourself to them. That's what a peacemaker does. Uh, Peacemakers take responsibility and accept accountability for their actions when it's appropriate. Peacemakers do that. They're not afraid of responsibility and accountability. That being said, sometimes people don't want peace. Sometimes it's not possible for you to make somebody make peace. Some people don't want it. Some people want to actively create strife, division. They want to sow that stuff. And, you know, sometimes there's nothing you can do about that. But as far as your ability goes, as far as your choices are, you seek to live at peace with all people as far as it goes with you. And you can do that even in a world where people don't always want peace. Another thing peacemakers will do is they'll bring reconciliation between other people. Um, a peacemaker, you're not going to see them entering into a conflict with other people and stirring up strife, stirring up division, gossiping about the situation. You're going to see them interceding for both people that are in this conflict. They are going to go to God for peace between these two people. They're going to apply God's ways in a situation to promote justice and righteousness. Because wherever there is peace, there is justice and righteousness. That brings peace. Being a peacemaker, if you just listening to this haven't figured this out yet, being a peacemaker is not easy. It is a, it's a Holy Spirit-empowered job. It's not sunshine and lollipops. I came across this good quote, I think, that puts it well from Matthew Henry in his commentary on this verse. He says, It is the lot of him who parts a fray to take blows from both sides. 
<laughs> so if you ever tried to break up a dog fight, both dogs might bite you. <laughs> that's going to happen. Sometimes that's what happens when we're peacemakers and we enter into conflict and things. And again, there's wisdom, so much wisdom involved in that. But when peace is our goal and we're being guided by Holy Spirit and by his wisdom, being in the family business of making peace is worth it. It's awesome. It's a blessing and it brings blessing to so many people. It diffuses that out. So peacemaking is worth it. Be, be a peacemaker. Let's look here at the last beatitude in verse 10. So if you look at um, this section of scripture, you're going to see that this is the last beatitude because it's the last one to follow the exact pattern. And I'm going to point out some bracketing devices here too that point out that this is the last one. He goes on in verse 11 to kind of elaborate on verse 10 here, but this is really the last true beatitude that's represented here. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So at some point, all true followers of Jesus are going to encounter persecution for righteousness. That is just going to happen. Um, It's an inevitability. Jesus goes on to say, you're blessed when they insult you, when they persecute you, when they falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. And when people speak against you, when they come against you, even physically, things like that, you're going to come against persecution like that. Let's talk a little bit about why the persecution comes, because I think that's important. It comes because of righteousness. Um, It doesn't doesn't come because maybe you're just mean or or whatever, you know. Maybe people just don't like you because you're unpleasant. There's a good quote on this, too, from uh, the Barnes commentary on uh, verse 10 here. He puts it this way. I thought this was a great summation. Because the persecution comes because they are righteous, because they are friends of God. We are not to seek persecution. We are not to provoke it by strange sentiments or conduct, by violating the laws of civil society, or by modes of speech that are unnecessarily offensive to others. But if in the honest effort to be Christians and to live the life of Christians, others persecute and revile us, we are to consider this a blessing. That's the type of persecution for righteousness that he's talking about here. Not something we seek out or, you know, I would love to die as a martyr, you know, like it just, it comes because of righteousness because we're living our lives for Jesus. So as we come to the conclusion of the Beatitudes here, there's a couple of things I want to highlight. Note the bracketing that finishes out the Beatitudes. It's the same as the first Beatitude. Um, For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In this slide here, you can see it. So look up here at verse 3. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then look down here at the end. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is a literary device called inclusion. And a lot of times when you see this, it is uh, you can assume that what is in between those two brackets is of the same theme. It's of one theme. And we talked about last week how the theme of all the Beatitudes together is basically the kingdom. This is the ways of the kingdom. The assurances, the blessing, and the ways of the kingdom are what is in between these brackets. And also note, this is also interesting, right, that uh, I noticed as I was studying this. Look at how the tense of all of these is. This is cool. Look up here. 
is. It's present. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now look at all of what's in the middle. This is all future. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be shown mercy. They will see God. They will be called sons and daughters of God. And then down here is is again as the present tense. So it's bracketed in that way. And I think this is just another uh, illustration of the inaugurated kingdom of Jesus, that he has come, that his kingdom has come, but also that there is a fulfillment of that kingdom. That is so theologically important. It makes sense of so many things in our lives and things that we encounter in scripture. Also, you can kind of see this as the first and the last two things are assurances. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. And everything that is in between those is a promise. It's like saying, if you have this, all of this comes with it. That's kind of a couple ways that you can look at that and how the Beatitudes, such a neat little package all together there. All right, so let's conclude this here. In conclusion, I'm going to come back to Jesus and Moses and the parallels between them. Both of them, both teachers, they conclude uh, their teaching with a choice. So Moses, his is in uh, the, toward the end of Deuteronomy, right before the song of Moses and kind of the detailing of his death. Moses presents a choice to Israel. Did I put that up here? Yes. In Deuteronomy 30, starting here in verse 19, it says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, love the Lord your God, obey him, and remain faithful to him. For he is your life, and he will prolong your days as you live in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's the choice that Moses presents to people at the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is basically a summation of the law. This is a summation of all of my teachings. I've told you all of it. I've told you how to do all of this. Now, here's the choice. Do it or don't do it. (laughs) And this is what's going to happen. So how does this compare to what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He presents a choice, and it's essentially the same. Life or death, blessing or curse, but he presents it in a parable. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. A choice. The wise and the foolish. The choice for those that hear Jesus' teaching is also between life and death, blessing and curse. And as with most parables, there are so many things that we can learn and take away from this. But what I want to focus on is the wise person is the one who hears the words and acts on them. Not just being a hearer, but being a doer. Many times in Israel, people heard, people saw the things that God did, um, but they, didn't, they weren't doers, and they suffered for it um, big time. So we have to live like what Jesus says is really true. I don't see this as like a, a list of tasks that we have to do perfectly so that we can get the reward. 
It's really a belief thing to me. Like, do I believe that this is true? Do I believe that Jesus came, that he died, that his kingdom has come, and that he's going to come back? And in the meantime, I declare that all of this is happening. I believe that all of his promises are yes and amen. I believe all of these things that he says. If I believe them, then I act on them. Then I do them. And uh, whenever I pray for myself, I'm just like, I, <laughs> I am the problem. <laughs> Help me believe on a greater level because you've already done all of it. Like, please, please, please help me to just latch on, increase my revelation of you, and help me to believe what you said, because I know that it's true intellectually. Help me to believe it and know that it's true in my practice, to be a doer of the word. So we have to live like that. If you believe something is true, you act on it. And for us, that is choosing life. You know, write down for that truth to trickle down into the decisions that we make all the time. I think think you can get legalistic on being like, all right, I'm looking at this decision. Am I making this decision as if what Jesus says is true? You You could get legalistic about anything, but that's just kind of an example. I want to live my life like what he says is the truth, because it is. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, help us to live like what you say is true. Uh, Help that revelation to trickle down into everything that we do, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. And to do, to sacrifice, to, to obey for the joy that is set before us, like you did, Lord, because it brings us joy, because we love you, because we love participating in your kingdom. And it's such an amazing privilege that we even get to, Lord. I just pray that you would increase our joy in obedience to you and submission to you, Lord. We thank you so much for caring for us, that you see us and know us, Lord. And thank you that you have a great inheritance in store for us, Lord. Thank you for an eternity with you, because there's nothing that beats that. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. Help us to go forward, glorifying you and proclaiming your name until you come, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.